Hello and welcome to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein. And I'm Mary Alice Parks, a political reporter with you, Rick, here in D.C. And Mary Alice, uh, a, a lot to get to, a special storm edition, uh, bracing for the storm. We're going to talk to the EPA administrator, Scott Pruitt, in a little bit. Uh, and uh, we should note that this is the first time we've actually live streamed one of our interviews. Um, the fact that it was on camera, don't read anything to the fact that John Carl isn't here and Mary Alice is. However, no, don't, don't read anything into that at all. But we're going to talk to the administrator a little bit about the storm preparations, uh, a little bit about climate change, a little about the agenda over at the EPA, uh, maybe even a little about baseball if we can get to it. But Mary Alice, a, a big week in politics because everything went upside down. And suddenly, uh, Chuck and Nancy might be the most powerful people in Washington. Uh, Donald Trump has upended expectations yet again by cutting this deal with Democrats, and the world will never be the same. And 90 House Republicans voted against their party leadership, voted against this deal that the president struck, basically to send a message that they weren't happy that he reached across the aisle. I mean, obviously, we don't know if this is just a one-time move, but it didn't happen in a vacuum. This comes after a summer of the president bashing leaders of his party. And so Republicans are really anxious that this might be a new strategy from the White House. And uh, I think they're also um, hesitant to, to read anything into it because it is the president and this president who freelances so often. And this may just be a one-off. Off. But if it isn't a one-off, it raises some big implications for the rest of the agenda. And I think you've been making a point pretty smartly, in my humble opinion, that the Democrats actually didn't get that much done in this in this deal. Uh, they, they got a deadline shifted. And basically, the government stays open for a while, and we don't default on our debts, and we pay for hurricane uh, relief. So all of those things are non-controversial. But the idea that the president uh, w- uh, would sit in the Oval Office and hear out the Democratic leaders and hear out the Republican leaders, hear out his own Treasury Secretary, and then on the spot have a handshake with the Democrats instead of the Republicans. That just doesn't happen. That just doesn't Rick, happen. Did, did you call me smart? What no. a great no, day. No, I said you made a smart point. What a great but, day. But I think you're right that, that this gets to what were originally some of Republicans' worst fears about this president, that he would be so quick to want a deal, any deal, to make a deal, to have a good handshake, to get a win, that his policies and agenda might be all over the map. And so they've been sort of comforted by the fact that in the first bit of his administration, he didn't work with Republicans. He towed a very conservative line, but he is known for wanting a win. He says that himself. And so if he's excited now, it seems like he's pretty excited by the press coverage of having worked with Democrats, that he he at least pushed back a showdown for now. Yeah, that makes Republicans anxious. But I do think that you're right. I don't think that it is totally fair for Democrats to claim some big victory here. I mean, the most they did was pocket a few bargaining chips for down the road. But as we know in this town, anything could happen in three months. Who knows if those bargaining chips will still matter in December? Basically, everything will be on the table again right before the holidays. And Democrats didn't actually pass anything new or tick off anything on their to-do list. Yeah, they didn't get anything done on the DACA recipients, uh, which, of course, is a big priority. They didn't get anything done on health care and, and propping up the exchanges. Or changing the federal spending levels. Change, yeah, changing changing those those spending caps, which was, is a big thing for them as well. And we don't even know because we don't know day by day. We don't know what the agenda is going to look like in December, let's be honest. We don't <laughs> Nowhere. But the Democrats did play it to try to become relevant again in December. I was struck by how fast Republicans seem to cave on this, too, because there's nothing that, that's written down that says that just because President Trump reaches a deal with Chuck Schumer, and Nancy Pelosi, that Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan have to say, OK, that's what we're going to do. They seem maybe a little fast to, to, to cave on this because they knew that they were getting bailed out in a sense. Uh, and so I'm not going to say this fix was in because I do think that um, the president betrayed them uh, directly there in, in, in cutting this deal. But it, it, it's not a clean cut in terms of victories and defeats here. Uh, but President Trump gets to be – you can see why he's happy because he cut a deal. 
This was the original promise slash fear of President Trump is that he would go and cut a deal. Ted Cruz said it. If you want someone that's going to cut a deal with Nancy Pelosi and, and Chuck Schumer, then maybe maybe Donald Trump's your guy. Well, this is what he did. Uh, and, and it sets up in a very interesting and very, very busy December. Right. It is a little disingenuous for Republicans to cry total foul, though, because remember, they really needed Democrats yeah. to vote with them to keep the government funded, to make sure the government didn't default on its bills. I mean, they couldn't bring enough votes together to get those bills passed because there's always that key group of conservatives that aren't going to vote on anything that doesn't include deep spending cuts. So for them to sort of be so upset and so up in arms about it uh, would be a little bit disingenuous. Yeah, it I, might be why they came so fast. And I'm, I'm told that in that Oval Office meeting that 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 uh, that, that Leader Pelosi said, look, I know politics, and if those guys have the votes, you don't need me. If Paul Ryan right. and Mr. McConnell have the votes, and the president asked them, do they have the votes? And of course, the answer was no, and that's why you needed the Democrats at all. It also highlights to me, Mary Alice, to broaden it out a little bit, the way that President Trump has laid waste to the political power centers in Washington, the fact that he could cut a deal with the minority folks and the Republican leadership is kind of unable to do anything about it. Uh, this is also a, a week we're seeing Steve Bannon emerge from the shadows, uh, blasting away at, uh, at Gary Cohn and people inside the administration. Uh, and by the way, over on the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton's got a book coming out. And uh, I can't decide who is less excited about this public turn. Is it Republicans not excited about Steve Bannon or Democrats not excited about what Hillary has to say? Democrats, Democrats are so frustrated by this continuing narrative that there's this big divide between Clinton folks and Sanders folks. And here, when they finally feel like they've kind of come together, yeah. here they have a good win, they're, they're moving into the fall feeling strong, they have all this momentum around health care, around DACA, now, Hillary Clinton herself puts that fight right back center stage. The leaked pages from the book get directly back at some really petty stuff from the primary. She's pointing a lot of fingers, it seems, back at Bernie Sanders. And and that is kind of what Democrats just, if anything, want to avoid. She, of all people, is putting them right back in the mix of it. Yeah, and, and it's it's a it's a, a public turn. I, you know, I, I think a lot of people would say she's entitled to her telling of this, entitled to t tell that story. But to the extent this is seen as settling old scores, uh, this is she's going to be out there. It'll be in the news for a couple of days, and it'll be the Democrats talking about about themselves. I'm curious, as always, is how the president responds to this. Uh, this is uh, this is going to be a high profile time for her. She's going to be all over the all over news talk shows. She'll be on on our air, on the View, and, and other places in the, in the coming days. And we'll hear a lot from Hillary Clinton. Does President Trump kind of hold his Twitter button back? Uh, I kind of doubt it. Uh, it kind of seems like he'd be he'd be primed to, to do something. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about the 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 lead up now to the storm. As we mentioned, we're going to talk to Secretary Pruitt. We'll show you that conversation in a little bit. Uh, the president, again, riding it out at Camp David. Uh, this time, his entire cabinet will will be with him. Um, it seems like this is a, a bit of a pattern. It happens that both of these storms, the recent storms, have happened on weekends. So it puts him at Camp David in, in the command seat. Uh, what's your sense of how the, the, the public part of the Harvey response went for the federal government and, and how that's coloring the preparations around Irma? Do you have any, any sense of the optics? 
I mean, I think the optics have been good for the president. You know, he went down there. He was visible, really vocal. I mean, this is a president that likes to speak directly to the people from his Twitter account, from from the airways, and he made a point of doing that. I think he's looked out in front of Hurricane Irma, and and that's important to people, just to feel like the, the federal government is paying attention, that they're on it. Whether or not that actually then translates to a better response, a more coordinated response, who knows? I mean, there's still a long, long way to go in figuring out what to do in Texas and a long, probably years-long cleanup effort uh, where there's going to be a lot of questions about how the federal government is or isn't involved. But the optics right now of at least looking like this president is engaged, like he's paying attention, I think helps people feel a little bit better. Yeah, I think I, I think the, the, this president's been very engaged in this process. Uh, we've heard from aides and advisors, this is his wheelhouse, that he uh, enjoys this. He had the pictures down there as well, and 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 kind of setting this one up. Uh, and uh, as we as we set up our conversation with um, with uh, with uh, Scott Pruitt from the EPA a little bit, you know, the issue that they're going to increasingly have to confront at some point climate change, and it, it goes unspoken often in the wake of these in the wake of these storms. But the extreme weather events that we're seeing, it's going to be a challenge to a president. We still don't know. He's still not on the record that we know of in believing whether. Climate change is man-made or not? Um, and Some of his top aides say, "Like I don't know, I'd have to ask they, him." And they haven't, by all by all accounts. And you know, this, the, there's always a you know you want to politicize the, a, a, a tragic event, a tragic weather event, or distract in any way. But these are very real challenges that the administration is going to have to confront. And the country's looking at this moment where there's back-to-back extreme weather incidents. I mean, yeah. obviously you can't necessarily link one specific hurricane to climate change, but scientists talk all the time about the fact that just warmer water means that these things are more likely. And you have a country that is shocked that these things could happen this close together. Yeah, and in an op-ed out just uh, just today from Christine Todd Whitman, the former EPA administrator, worried about politicization at the EPA. All right, so on that point, uh, pleased to bring you our conversation with the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, Scott Pruitt. So let's start with this storm, and uh, you can fill us in a little bit on what the EPA's role is on this, but what what is the danger level to your mind for this devastation? Obviously, beyond the storm, you've got responsibilities around that, but in terms of the environmental damage that might come afterward. Well, look, the population centers in Florida, substantial. I mean, the, the, the storm that just went through Texas, uh, obviously, tremendous impact, a tremendous concern there, but this is actually, I think, a little bit larger with respect to the impact on population. So we're looking at many things right now. Uh, 80, 80 Superfund sites uh, that we're monitoring uh, all the way from Miami to North Carolina. As you know, those Superfund sites sometimes have uh, lead-related issues or other related concerns that, that can leak into water supplies that threaten uh, citizens locally. And so and owners of those facilities uh, have risk management plans and others that they have to implement to ensure. So we're, vul- we're assessing vulnerability now, and then we're communicating with those owners to say, we see some vulnerabilities here. You need to take steps to secure those sites. That's one aspect. Uh, another area that's tremendously important is access to fuel. You know, you've seen the lines yeah. in Florida. Um, and, and this is just a supply and demand situation. As demand increases in these kind of situations, it's substantial. And as you know, with respect to air permits, we have certain blended gasoline in all parts of the country, which creates what? Uh, it's too much diversification on that fuel and, and supply concerns. So we just waived those requirements during this period of time to increase access to fuel and supplies of fuel. Uh, Governor Scott and I were on the phone twice yesterday about that yesterday morning, uh, trying to provide some certainty to the citizens in, that, uh, in Florida and along the eastern seaboard. So there's many issues from drinking water to Superfund uh, to uh, debris management, you know, landfills. 
uh, et cetera, that, that, that we're dealing with in this kind of situation. So this could be a very long-term uh, recovery oh, there's no effort. Doubt. There's no doubt. I mean, initially, it's more monitoring. Initially, it's, it's it, it assessing and trying to determine where the vulnerabilities are as best you can. And then uh, the storm hits. And then, obviously, you assess from that point. And, and you want to be able to, to monitor and assess as quickly as possible post the storm so people can get back into their homes uh, and get back into those affected areas to rebuild and, and restructure. You know, speaking of monitoring um, and looking at that damage, there were 13 Superfund sites, as you know, in the Houston area that were flooded or damaged last week after the hurricane. And as of last weekend, it seemed like some inspectors weren't even able to get to some of those sites. It's, Have all the sites now been reached? And what's the status? Some of the sites were, in fact, they, they were monitored, air, you know, aerial, aerial assessments going on, and, and there was co- constant communication. But yes, those sites are able to be accessed now. There's, there's a first responder uh, safety safety aspect here. We had the chemical plant, as you know, that, that was of, of, of consequence there in Texas. And a lot of that was the fire marshal there. I was on the phone, con- the phone with the fire marshal quite a bit. They were concerned about sending their folks in to, to deal with that situation because of the, the, the threat to their own personnel. So there's a coordination, and that's what's missed in these storms, I think. The federal response is essential. The federal response is so important, but it's the federal response in conjunction with local and state officials. It truly is a partnership because there's authority, as you know, that's granted to local, state, federal officials. In FEMA, you know, coordinating interagency, federal government, but then us working with local and city, you know, local towns and, and the state, we embedded, as an example, we embedded individuals in cities and towns across Texas in advance of the storm so that we would have real-time response to the mayor of Corpus Christi or what have you to say, this is what we're dealing with. And we're doing the same thing in Florida right now. Okay, I want to ask about that Arkema chemical explosion, but, but quick, back to the Superfund sites, which we know as the EPA identifies them, they have been polluted, they could contain cox- toxic, Sorry. dangerous chemicals. I mean, how are you going to guarantee to people in Houston that sinking, drinking water is safe, that soil is safe? I mean, that's scary when you think about 13 of these sites flooded. Yeah, these sites, like like all of our Superfund sites, are an absolute priority of the agency. And so what we're doing is going in to determine uh, if there's a threat, we notify those citizens and we evacuate and, 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 and then we contain, just like in every situation. So we're working with the local officials. Local, one, one thing to keep in mind, though, with respect to Superfund sites, owners and private, they're responsible. They pay for that. They're, they're responsible for, for making sure that those sites are secure. Our responsibility is to hold them accountable, and that's what we're doing right now, working with those owners, working with those Superfund sites to say, you must take these steps to ensure safety and security of drinking water and the rest for citizens in that area. And if there's any concern whatsoever, guess what we do? We deal with it, contain it, and then advise the citizens as a result. So I'm curious, as you deal with this, and there's a robust federal response that obviously in, it involves a lot of what the EPA does, you have been very critical of the EPA mission before you became uh, the administrator. And uh, as attorney general, you're known for suing the, the EPA. Uh, you, you'd said earlier this year that it was justified for some people to want to eliminate the EPA. And of course, we know the president himself has advocated for basically the elimination of the EPA. I'm curious, as you look at things like this, if there's anything changes in your mindset. If, is there anything that you've learned in these last seven months or so on the job that say, well, I didn't realize this, or here is a critical mission, or do you still believe people are justified in saying there shouldn't be an EPA? Well, I think, the, I think one context to your, to your you know, the, the summary that you provided, my perspective, you can go back to 2013, 2012, as I was bringing litigation against the EPA. I said consistently, there's a very important role, a vital role for the EPA. I've never been one. Uh, to, to advocate that the EPA should should not be uh, in existence or doesn't have a very important role. We have a very important role, and I've said that consistently. What I, meant, what, what, what I said in that situation is people are justified at times of feeling that way because of the response and the overreach of the last several years in cer- certain areas. 
But Rick, from my perspective, in this situation, Superfund is an area. We are we are absolutely the first responders in, in a general sense to those situations, uh, working with those private partners to make sure that they're they're responsible for that and we hold them accountable. So that that's a very important role. On drinking water, we have Superfund sites across the country that we have to ensure safe drinking water. East Chicago comes to mind. And to your question, if it's, if it's a threat, guess what we do? We work with Governor Abbott in Texas or Governor Scott in Florida, and we take bottled water in. Or we whatever we have to do to ensure safe drinking water, that's what we do. So there's a very important role for the EPA historically and particularly in these kinds of situations. Are there things that you've learned on the job from the scientists you work with, from people at the EPA that's, that, that give you a different appreciation than you've done on the outside? Well, I think I – think Obviously, not having lived through you know emergency response in this way as yeah. attorney general, I've dealt with it in different ways: terrorism activities or you know coordination with law enforcement officials. But in this situation, the technical expertise of getting in and assessing these sites something I'm not uh, familiar with. But it's 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 we've done a I think a tremendous job at partnering with TCEQ in Texas, the, the Council of Environmental Quality, mm-hmm. the DEQ in Florida, making sure that they have the technical resources to assess threats that that are in existence. That's a very important role that we play. And and, and we had Region 4, uh, the Region 4 administrator, is embedded right now in South Florida with this situation. Region 6, Sam Coleman, uh, he and I were on the phone consistently uh, during the last storm. He was embedded with TCQ in Austin as we went through the situation there. That partnership is so important, uh, Rick, and, and it, it played out, I think, in a very effective way there in Texas, and we seek to do that in Florida. You know, one of the specific policies that's been talked about a lot in light of Houston had to do with the EPA's decision to delay implementation of that Obama-era rule. The R&D. Right. Yeah. That the Arkema chemical plant would have had to say exactly how much they Which were Which they holding. still do. They still do. And, and but is there any, are there any are there any regrets or any well, there's no back? regrets because look there's nothing what we're doing there is risk management plans are important. Risk management plans are important to citizens in the community. They deserve to know. Uh, what a chemical plant has on site and the threat that is... But your it, agency decided to push back no, implementation no, but, but, of that But of it's that important rule. to note why and in, in what way. And the way that we have addressed that is the... Because what, if you have too much information in that RMP that then can inform... Ter- these these, these uh, chemical plants are terrorist opportunities as well. They present uh, soft targets to terrorists to come in and, and do something pretty pretty bad in those communities. And so what you've got to do is strike the balance in what's in that RMP so that you're not informing terrorists on helping them have data that they shouldn't have. That was the whole focus and still is the focus. It was never about and isn't about doing away with RMPs or making sure that communities in the area or citizens aren't aware of what uh, uh, they need to know to evacuate or deal with concerns. That never was the focus and still isn't the focus. It was always about what do we put in the RMP to adequately inform our citizens, but also not inform terrorists that might then target those facilities and threaten those citizens in those communities. So earlier this week, as you you may know... uh, And that RMP plan, to your point, Mary Alice... Uh, so important because guess what? We, during the midst of the Arkema situation, guess what we were able to do? I pulled that RMP and I looked at what the requirements of the risk management plan, you know, required, and we've begun asking questions. Did they do that? Did they have adequate generation support? Did they have redundancy? with respect to those uh, trailers that, that blew up. We don't know yet. There's some concern that they didn't. There's some concern that they didn't have a primary power source that, that, uh, that refrigerated those trailers to, you know, to, to keep those chemicals safe and secure, and they didn't have redundancy uh, on top. So we're dealing with it. So those RMPs, very much important. I've never been against RMPs. 
it's the specific aspects of what's in those RMPs that help inform terrorists that we need to be, uh, national security concerns has been the focus. And dealing with it means holding them to account? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, there are certain steps we can take, Rick, uh, something called a Section 114 letter that we can forward to uh, c- companies all across the country to say, we need to have more information about this situation because we're concerned, perhaps, that, that you didn't take the appropriate steps under your, your risk management plan. Those things are actually... Uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but know that those things are, are, are being considered. So earlier this week, in the, on the issue of, of preparedness for, for a hurricane, uh, there's a certain prominent Florida res- resident who has a big radio show. You may have heard of the guy, Rush Limbaugh, who had, had this. How long has he been around? Yeah, yeah you know, up and comer. We're, okay, we're, here, okay, we're, okay. We're, hoping, we're hoping he can I be successful. That is a pretty successful. nascent program. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Take, take a listen to what he had to say about, uh, about the emerging threat from Irma. You can accomplish a lot just by creating fear and panic. You don't even need the hurricane to hit anywhere. All you need is to create the fear and panic accompanied by talk that climate change is causing hurricanes to become more frequent and bigger and more dangerous. And you create the panic and its mission accomplished agenda advanced. So he's referring to news media hype on these things. He's also referring in part to government agencies that are part of these forecasts. You're on the inside. Is there <laughs> is there hype? Is there is this is this about hype around climate change? I just find it striking, and I actually was talking to somebody yesterday about this. Um, I find it striking in the midst of a storm, getting ready to hit Florida, and access to housing, access to power, access to fuel, uh, very fundamental needs of the citizens of that area that we're, that we're trying to assess cause and effect of a storm. There'll be a day and time to talk about that. But to take any attention away from first responders and the things that matter to providing fuel, power, housing, and those kinds of issues to citizens in that, that, that state, just like in Texas, I know, th- I know this. I have to focus my attention, my resources, the, the focus of the agency on that because that is most urgent and most important at this point. Does that mean that those questions shouldn't be asked and answered, Rick? Absolutely not. But there's a time and place for those questions to be asked. And for, for folks to be asking, not, I'm not talking about you guys. I'm talking about whatever, whatever uh, you know, people sitting in wherever in this country and pontificating about what is the cause and effect of the storm, to me, is, 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 is resources and time that really isn't most essential so right is, now. So is it harmful to have Rush Limbaugh talking in that way? Do people feel like the, the, if, you're, if you're minimizing the threat of this storm by talking about it in the I, context I don't think of climate it, I don't change? Think, my, my comment to, to you just now is not minimizing or otherwise the storm. It's, it's prioritizing what has to be focused upon by an agency of the federal government to respond to the needs of the citizens of Florida. That's the focal. That's the focus. Now, again, will there be a time and place to perhaps discuss that and debate that? Sure. But not in the midst of the storm, not in the midst of the responses, because there's enough to say grace over right now. We're on the heels that I was sharing on the way up here. This is two major storms back to back, right? And from a response, responsiveness from an agency perspective, it's a challenge to make sure that we get our resources deployed, partnering with those cities and towns in the state of uh, Florida to help serve the, the citizens there. And that's what our focus is. Uh, before we let you go, uh, you're a big baseball fan, former second baseman uh, yeah, in college. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is uh, Mary Alice, by the way? Because we were talking baseball earlier. <laughs> yeah. Not a big baseball fan. Absolutely. Okay. My, actually, I do have something to add here. My best friend growing up is the director of operations of the minor league baseball team in my hometown. All right. Where's that? Tacoma, Washington. Oh, yeah. yeah. I like that. Yeah, that so, was a AAA team, if I'm not mistaken. Or what have been. 
Let's give us some picks for the playoffs. The Dodgers, uh, Oklahoma well, City's team I mean, has been the Dodgers very, have had very a great year. But but the but Diamondbacks been, right now. I mean, I think if yeah. you look at the if you look at the National League side of the ledger, the Diamondbacks are playing as well, are probably better than anybody in the in, in baseball right now. Um, I think it's a National League year. I mean, when you look at the, the the way the MLB season has played out, I think Dodgers, Diamondbacks, uh, obviously going to play well. I'm an American League. I'm, you know, when we owned the team in Oklahoma City, we were affiliated with the American League, so I followed the Rangers. That was our parent club. Uh, but but I just think the strength's going to be on the National League side of the ledger this year. And you didn't even mention the Washington Nationals in that. Uh, Look, I've been to a few games here, and, I, and I'll tell you, very impressive facility. Yeah. You know, I had not had the occasion to, to, to spend a lot of time there, and it's a tremendous facility. It's good to see them get some relief pitching, and, uh, and, and maybe there's some hope now. But, uh, but uh, it's a great stadium. All right. They do a nice job over there. Scott Pruitt from Thank the Environmental Protection Agency. Nice Thanks for being you. here at Powerhouse Politics. Appreciate it. So, Mary Alice, I, I think, you know, a lot not said by uh, by Administrator Pruitt in, in that interview, uh, climate change. You, you hear him not wanting to address the issue, just saying this isn't the time for it. Maybe there will be a time at some point. He's even suggested maybe a televised debate on the topic. And it was interesting that he did talk about sort of wanting to make sure that some of those Obama-era rules were eventually put in place, even though his administration, his tenure at the EPA has taken a lot of flack for delaying implementation of some of those rules. But but here he was saying that, yes, fundamentally, these rules to make sure that chemical plants and refineries having to report what they have on hand are important. So I think he will be held to that, and whether they actually come through and, and eventually put those rules in place. That's right. And once again, you can we, we live stream that interview, so you can, you can watch it at abcnews.com. Uh, again, John Carl, not on camera, uh, which I guess is, you know. People see him on camera all the time. I know. It's just, it's just too much. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Mary Alice. And that will do it for today's edition of Powerhouse Politics. Please take a moment to rate the show. Write us a review on the Apple Podcasts uh, app or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people to discover the show. And you can find us on Twitter. Uh, both Mary Alice and I are very active on Twitter. Happy to, to get your, uh, your audience there as well. Don't forget, you can find all of the ABC News podcasts by going to abcnewspodcast.com. Today's show produced by David Rind, Avery Miller, Megan Hughes, and Stephanie Ebbs. Big thanks to Stephanie for helping us uh, book uh, the, sec- the Secretary Pruitt. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.